0: The time has come is we've gotta go the extra step.
1: From the political science department at UW Madison, not compromise, we want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers.
0: Geez, they're they're trying to they're trying to balance the power here.
1: And I'm Claire Salome.
0: It's a patriotic
1: responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. On this episode of 1050 Bascom, we are happy to welcome back Professors Mark Koblovich and John Peavy House to talk about the upcoming La Follette Forum, American Power, Prosperity, and Democracy that will be held on Wednesday, May 4th at the Monona Terrace and include academic researchers as well as experts from journalism, private industry, and public policy. All the cool kids are going to be there. But if you haven't quite decided yet, then we have a great episode for you today. We're going to give you guys a preview of the events, the people that are going to be there, and the great topics that they are going to be discussing. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, guys, and let's jump right in. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: So maybe before we really get started, you guys can give us a quick overview of the forum, what we can expect, you know... What listeners can expect to see there?
2: Yes. Yeah, so LaFollette, Don and I are both jointly appointed, both in poli and in the LaFollette School. So LaFollette puts on an annual policy forum every year, which is you know, part of the mission of the LaFollette School's outreach, right? And so this is the idea of sort of Wisconsin idea type of thing of taking our research and teaching expertise and engaging with public policy issues and talking to the broader public and There's Senator Cole, former Senator Cole, has been a very generous donor to the La Follette School. And one of the things he has done is donated a pot of money for research projects for La Follette faculty. So I was fortunate enough to get one of those awards this year on a project on global finance and the future of American foreign and economic policy. And so along with the award and funding the the book project and research on, on that topic that I'm working on, I was invited. There's a faculty organizer for the forum. And so I'm sharing and organizing the forum this year on kind of a related set of topics, which is American prosperity, power, and democracy. And so the idea is we've been really lucky to invite and have them accept a a set of really impressive kind of like nationally known keynote speakers on each of those three topics. So we're going to talk about Inflation, economic policy, the sort of U.S. economy in the wake of the pandemic crisis with Adam Posen, who's the chair of the Peterson Institute for International Economics, sort of the main international economics think tank in B.C., uh, and Catherine Rampell from The Washington Post, economic journalist. I'll be a discussant on that, along with Menzi Chin. Our, our economist colleague we'll in La and Mike Knetter, who used to be dean of the business school and now runs the UW Foundation. The second panel is going to be on basically the U.S.-China rivalry what does it mean for the future of American hegemony, U.S. foreign policy, that sort of stuff. And uh, so we have Paul Bluestein, who's a UW alum and used to be the chief financial journalist for the Washington Post, who lives in Japan now. Uh, he's written a book a couple of years ago about, called Schism about China joining the World Trade Organization, kind of the economic side of the U.S.-China rivalry. And then we have Oriana Mastro from Stanford University who's an expert on U.S.-China security relations and Asian security, and so she's going to talk more about the foreign security rivalry. And John, our colleague, Tana Johnson, and our John's wife, my, my other colleague, yeah, Jessica Weeks, are gonna be the faculty discussants on that one. And the third panel is with Jamel Bowie from the New York Times and Dan Ziblatt from Harvard University. I like think everybody knows who Jamel is, you know, sort of op columnist for The New York Times, writing a ton about American democracy and race relations and politics. Dan Ziblatt wrote a book called How Democracies Die a couple of years ago, which is about the rise of authoritarianism and how authoritarian regimes uh, democracies backslide. They're going to talk about challenges to American democracy broadly. We're going to have Mike Wagner from the School of Journalism and Mass Communications, along with our colleagues, Delia Herrera and Kathy Kramer, be the faculty discuss this on that. So we've got these three keynotes over the course of the day, and then we are doing a series of lunchtime breakout discussions with a bunch of other faculty, a bunch of people from the media like Jesse Apoian and David Haynes, a bunch of people from the state government like Missy Hughes and Randy Gromansky who work in various economic policy positions. of The state, we're basically going to try and pull these big global and international issues down to... What, you know, what, what things about the state of the economy and U.S. China relations and democracy mean at the local and state level, right? So among those, our colleague Barry Burden is going to run one on election, on election security and election policy reform. We're going to have other sessions on media in the age of polarization, inflation, and what it means for households, the changing nature of work in the wake of the pandemic. So a lot of cool stuff going on. All of which is, you know, the idea is to sort of take the research expertise we have on campus, link it up with people who are policy experts and out in the broader world and kind of show what we do, have a follow and how it's relevant for, for public debate. You know, it's at Minota Terrace, so we've got space for lots of people. The hope is to get a lot of people from the university, a lot of people from the broader community, people from more broadly in Wisconsin. It's also going to be all available via live stream. So we're hoping to generate as big an audience as possible. And. And we're excited about it.
3: Nice. A loaded docket, it sounds like.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was really, you know, you send out these invitations and you hope that, that, hope that people will say yes, and uh, we really were able to get a great lineup, so it should be good.
3: Awesome. Well, while you're here, we'd love to get both of your takes on some of these three issue areas that the forum is going to cover. So maybe let's break down and talk through each one briefly. So first, the COVID-19 pandemic and the corresponding economic crises and the threats that those pose to the future of American prosperity. So two plus years into an ongoing, but we hope finally subsiding, pandemic. (laughs) How has the U.S. weathered COVID-19 economically with maybe respect to both social and economic systems more generally?
2: Yeah, so the short answer actually is we have had an unprecedentedly rapid and near total uh, economic recovery, which is actually not the case for the rest of the kind of industrialized world. Basically, if you look at, if you go back to about April of 2020, unemployment was at 14.7%, which was higher than it had been in 80 years. You know, Pretty much by every other economic metric, the economy had cratered. We were sort of thinking about Oh my god, are we having another global financial crisis, another great depression style collapse? And if you look now, employment, labor force participation, economic growth, household income, household consumption, we're basically we've completely recovered the trend that we had in 2019-2020, right? So on the one hand, like you would think there would be this enormous optimism about the state of the economy. Everybody thinks the economy is terrible because inflation is really high. Right? And, you know, 7.9% is incredibly high inflation relative to history. It's not the 1970s when we were nearly 15%. uh, But inflation has basically been zero to 3%, mostly in the kind of one to 2% range for most of the last 20 years. And that's dominated the kind of media, political debate about, you know, the state of the economy, and it's a huge hot button political issue when people see gas prices and people see rising food prices and things like that. So, so there's this sort of political economy tension of in, you know, macroeconomic terms, objectively, the U.S. economy is doing great. And, you know, we're the only G7 economy that has recovered that trend. The Europeans are still lagging far behind. The Canadians haven't recovered quite as much as we have. But, the feeling is the economy is doing really poorly, and a lot of the political debate is about is about that. So that's sort of kind of where we are. And you know, one of the things we'll talk about in the forum, right? I think is you know what going forward, how long will inflation last? What does it mean? You know, we had a giant economic relief package and all all kinds of assistance from the government. The average household, I think, received about thirty five hundred dollars last year in various things like checks and file tax credits and things like that. So that basically prevented household income from declining at all last year. But that was probably a one and done. And there's still inflation, right? So if you think about going forward now, you know, the cost of living is higher and people's people's wages are going down in real terms. And so, you know, w- when people hear the uh, Oh, the economy is doing well. They also say, well, I kind of look at my household income situation and things look like they're going to be tough going forward. And then you lob in a war with Russia and Ukraine. We kind of thought we were about a month and a half ago, we thought inflation was peaking and it was going to come back down to kind of pre-crisis levels by November or December. Now all bets are off because of the gas and oil implications of the Russia-Ukraine war. So there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, is the short way to think about it, that it's been a really successful recovery, but nobody nobody has any confidence about what the next 12 to 24 months look like now.
0: Yeah, and I guess I would just echo that and add to that just a couple of things. I would really emphasize Mark's last point about uncertainty in the sense of right, markets don't like uncertainty. We as consumers don't like uncertainty. And it's uncertainty about economics, which we always, most people have because they're not economists it's also uncertainty about, you know, as your question started out, like, are we really out of this? Like, or in two months, is there going to be another wave and we're all masking again and going back? And, you know, and so I think it's both the the medical uncertainty about what's going on coupled with the financial uncertainty coupled with now we've got a major war going on. And you add to that, right, inflation, supply chain problems, and just the fact that this threw everyone for such a loop, as Mark said back in April of, you know, in that spring when COVID begins to Uh, unravel you know we all thought this was going to be like a short term like oh this will be a month or two and then it turned into six months nine months a year two years and so it's just that uncertainty that has kept compounding over time and and the experiences people have but right many of the objective indicators other than inflation look pretty darn good i mean look around wages are up and you know it's just that inflation's eating those away in some cases
2: yeah, it, unemployment is below 3%. It's the lowest unemployment basically since World War II, right? So it's sort of a lot of this is, you know, we're good political scientists and political economists, right? So a lot of this is the framing, right? You know, and you, you, you work in journalism, right? So the framing of these. So one of the things I've been doing, it's kind of started off more as a, as a hobby, but I'm kind of doing it a little more systematically now is tracking media coverage of inflation versus unemployment over the last year. And if you go do like a Lexis, Nexus search with, you know, unemployment in the article title and Biden versus inflation in the title and Biden in the article, over the last year, 12 times more articles on inflation than unemployment, and in the last month, about 40 times more articles because of gas prices going up. And so, you know, public opinion is shaped by media cues and priming and framing and things like this. And so on the one hand, people are experiencing this, but at the same time, right, unemployment is incredibly low, people's consumption and income is actually rising, but the public perception is things are bad. And a lot of that is how we kind of frame our discussion and which metrics we we pick and which ones get amplified in the political debate. Um, And, you know, most, John, you know, John and I are in our 40s, right? And so, you know, we vaguely remember as kids the oil shocks and sitting in the gas lines in the 1970s and things like that. But most people who are in policy making positions are older than that. And a lot of you know, senior commentary commentators and academics remember the 1970s and their views of policy are shaped very much by. The experience of the oil shocks and 15 percent inflation and you know, kind of across the Western world, the the, the inflation shock and the idea that it might be the 1970s again is something that's just become really central to the political debate.
1: Looking to the future, what are all these COVID era changes and maybe even the great resignation going to do to our economy in the long run? Like what what kind of ripple effect should we expect?
2: (laughs) I don't know that we know in the long run. Right. I mean, the interesting thing about the Great Resignation is it looks like it didn't exist. Right. So if you look at, again, like the labor force participation rate and things like that, people are coming back to work. And as John said, it, it, it turns out. It looks almost entirely cyclical about fear, about the pandemic and childcare and, and all kinds of things. And, you know, the most interesting number I saw this week was part of the whole Great Resignation story was people were retiring earlier and just leaving the workforce. And actually the numbers now of people in their 60s and older who are coming back to work just as high, right? That rate is returned to just as high as pre, pre-crisis trends as well. We had this debate actually after the global financial crisis in 2008 to 11, there was this debate about cyclical versus structural unemployment. And you the same idea of a massive recession, lots of people left the workforce and like the labor market is totally changed again. So there are different views on this. My view is it's almost entirely cyclical. In terms of employment levels and participation. But I think the part of your question that we don't know and there will absolutely be changes about is things like remote work. Right? You know, so people will come back to the workforce, but the whole, you know, is everybody coming back to offices? Right? Are people going to work more remotely? What does that mean for like commercial real estate markets in downtown Chicago or New York? If suddenly half your workforce is you know, if you're a big bank or law firm or something and half your workforce is working remotely, you don't need the expensive office space in the high-rise in downtown Chicago anymore. And that has a huge ripple effect on on like the structure of cities and the economy and things like that. So I think it's a fascinating question. I don't actually know that we know over like the next five, 10, 15 years, what does that do?
0: Yeah, and not to, not to repeat what I said earlier, but again, the uncertainty over the health side. And I think, look, the 19... 19- you know, 18 pandemic took four years to play itself out and the cycles of the infections and so forth. And so we're, in that case, we're not, we still got a couple of years left. And I think Mark's right, you know, this sort of whole remote work and the move to it, it, most of the productivity measures suggest that it's actually helped productivity out. It's created efficiencies. It's increased job satisfaction in many industries. And so, you know, this is a good shift to have made. During the pandemic and that and that even once all the the health uncertainty is resolved, like they may want to stay with it and, and that may bring even more people back into employment and so we'll have to see but I think ultimately marks right we 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 still don't know there's still a lot of uncertainty there.
2: I think here in Wisconsin we've you know for the last there's been a policy discussion for the last many years now about, you know, the population is shrinking and young people, are they staying in Wisconsin? And there's sort of a skills gap or, you know, sort of how do we get workers to kind of stay in Wisconsin and work? I think it's a national debate too. But if you start to think about remote work, you know, businesses can start to think about different ways to find employees who aren't necessarily physically in proximity to where their business is located. It's kind of related to older debates about outsourcing and things like that that happened in the 90s and 2000s. And so that, you know, you can imagine those aggregate up to really major structural changes in the American labor force and the American economy. But there is so much uncertainty that I don't think we, we, it's hard to see the like long-term structural trends when there's these sort of like month to month debates about inflation and unemployment and things like that. You know, it's a sort of unsatisfactory way of saying like, ask us again in three or four years and we'll have a sense of what trends are starting to emerge.
0: I mean, a little bit, uh, this is a dumb example in some ways, but it's a local one. Like, you know, the university has been pushing as you all know, to come back in person, like not just faculty and students, but staff as well. The hospital side of the university has said like, nope, stay remote, we don't care and you know there's been a there's been a non trivial shift in employment on this campus over to the hospital side right staff like undergrads may not see this and students may not see this but you know as chair and stuff i see this kind of thing like a lot of staff is like moving over to the hospital now cuz they're like i want to work at home two days a week and the writing they're seeing on the wall from the the university side, like that, that administration side is nope, that's not going to be okay. When the hospital's like, Yeah, we don't we don't need you in five days a week, and you're just seeing lots of people pick up and move, especially younger workers. And so, like, I think that's a microcosm on this campus of what you're seeing more generally.
2: Yeah, and the trend in the other direction with with classes I mean, there was this whole debate about MOOCs and moving everything online, and universities were gonna, yeah, you know, we're gonna become obsolete about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and yeah. You know, I don't know if everybody shares this view, but my, my experience, both as faculty and interacting with students is, you know, what we learned from the pandemic is everybody wants in-person activities because doing things on Zoom all day is just, you know, mind and soul crushing and, and exhausting, right? And so this idea of, you know, college is going to move away completely online that some people were arguing that was going to be a big structural transformation 10 years ago. I think that's not going to happen now you know, there'll be some of it. And the flip side is, you know, a lot of the workshops and things like that that John or I in, uh, involved in, faculty, grad student workshops, you can invite speakers from all over the world now. Like we've learned that you can do Zoom sessions and that's nice for like a once a week talk or a once a month special event, but nobody wants to be five days a week on Zoom and doing online classes. You guys don't want it. We don't want it. <laughs> um, no, yeah.
3: not at all. Yeah, yeah, you bring up an interesting point there though that I'm sure will be touched on more in depth in the forum.
2: <laughs> One of the breakout sessions is gonna be exactly on this changing nature of work. Awesome. And yeah, you know, what it means to sort of Madison.
3: We're gonna move on to that second big theme that the forum's gonna cover, which is the rise of China and the challenge that that poses to the world order maybe, or at least the future of American power and leadership. So there's this debate going on in literature and media on this question of whether China is a threat to the future of U.S. prosperity or is this just threat inflation by political and economic elites? Do you have a take on that?
2: Here, I'll, John, why don't you go on Yeah, answer.
0: I'll start on this one. So this is a really fascinating question. And, you know, I think if you look at public opinion, it's fairly, well, public opinion right now is sort of set up to be fairly anti-China. There's actually... Um, and Jessica, Jessica Weeks and I have done a series of uh, polls in the last couple of years where we're kind of looking at public perceptions of China. And for, for the most part, people are taking in this message, this, you're right, kind of elite message in the U.S. that China's a potential threat. They don't play fair. You know, a lot of the rhetoric that was especially coming out in the Trump administration. But frankly, that the Biden administration has not really distanced itself from that much, you know, especially the policies, you know, for all the trade war rhetoric about trump and this trade deal like biden hasn't changed any of that we're still a lot of those policies are still status quo and so what you find in sort of the modal public person in the united states and modal public opinion figure is that you know there's a lot of skepticism a lot of kind of fear about china and kind of a watchful eye on them what's fascinating though is that doesn't necessarily correlate with sort of ready to like go out and either fight them or challenge them directly. There you're getting, there a lot of what we've discovered is you're getting a very divided public on how activist we should be to confront China on these things, which I think is interesting. Like everyone agrees there could be a problem. Most people agree there could be a problem, but big sec, very divided public as to what we should do about it. And the the flip side of that though, is if you go talk to any economist or people in the business community, they're all like, oh, we got to get things back right with China. Right, like the path forward on the economy is to make sure we're doing well with China. And so that's there's a big disjuncture between what I think, what I would call it kind of economic elites see as the future path forward and what kind of is being sold in, in the general public. And the final thought on this, and I know we're gonna to come to this, but this is why the war in Ukraine is such a big deal. One of the many reasons why it's such a big deal is this is going to strain Right. I think potentially the economic ties between the US and China, because it's giving as China continually is kind of throwing its lot more and more in on the Russia side. It's giving those domestically who want who may want to inflate the threat or maybe, you know, you if you believe the threat is real like state the threat. And so you're going to get more and more, I think, domestic pushback on China policy, you know, pushback against cooperation with China, even economically, whereas. You know, I think the, the business community is now even more bothered by what's going on with here saying like, oh, no, like, you know, this is the path forward. We've got to include China, keep China in the global economic system, kick Russia out, but keep China in. Right. But can you do that? Like, can you actually accomplish that? And I think you're going to have the public saying kick them out too, kick them both out. Right. They're guilty together. And so I think we're getting we're coming on a really uncertain and potentially dangerous time for kind of political economics right now because of the war and because of this sort of, you know, growing challenge of of China internationally.
2: Yeah, I think I would jump in on what John said there. And one of the things I think the last month and the war has done is made people think a little bit about exactly like how powerful is Russia and how powerful is China and how dependent are we, right? We, the U.S., or we, the U.S. in the West, the EU, the G7, et cetera. China and the United States are incredibly interdependent. They're the two largest economies in the world, right? They dominate global trade along with the EU. Russia is a tiny player in the world economy. In the, in the aggregate, they're sort of big as an oil exporter, as a metal producer and in agricultural goods. But you know, they're not the sort of diversified industrialized economy like the U.S. or China. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk right now. And maybe we'll talk more about this, about things like, you know, shutting off gas, you know, no more, no more natural gas imports right from Russia, the EU shutting off, the U.S. stopping, whatever. Um, you could imagine unhooking from the Russian economy. If you're the United States, you can't unhook from the Chinese economy. Like all this talk in the Trump administration of bringing all the manufacturing jobs home or completely decoupling from China. One of the reasons the Biden administration has continued with most of the policies is, you know, we and China are codependent or interdependent with each other. And there really is no global economy without China. And yet there are all kinds of political tensions we have with them geopolitical ones, economic ones, et cetera. So John mentioned the trade policy. You know, the Biden administration basically, I kind of call it mercantilism with a human face. Right. So it's, you know, it's the it's the same protectionist trade policies, right? Minus the racism and xenophobia, new Cold War rhetoric, right? But it's the same economic policies. And that's the political tension of, you know, trade is incredibly popular in the aggregate. Most Americans you know, engage with trade only as consumers, so we like to keep stuff at Target and on Amazon. But then when you tell people, well, trade with China, it starts to become a thing about maybe we should protect jobs or maybe because they're not a democracy and there's tensions, we should, you know, we should kind of protect American industry and things like that. And it's like the third rail of politics, especially for the Democrats. Being an ardent free trader is not something you can do if you want to be the Democratic candidate for president. And so Biden did a very careful dance of being less protectionist aggressively than Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in the primary, but he didn't go on to become full free trader. And now that he's in office, you know, you have new Cold War protectionist Republican Party and you have the left wing of the Democratic Party is protectionist in a different you know, with a different set of political ideologies and it's hard to kind of say you know, globalization is good and the benefit—the benefits outweigh the costs and we should change our policies. And so there's a lot of uncertainty where it's going to go, right? You know, even if China continues to ally closely with Russia on military and security affairs, you simply can't unhook as the US from China. You know, you could do that, but it would take 40, 50 years to kind of reorient the structure of the economy. And that's not the timeline in which politics works.
1: Yeah, definitely. We don't have 50 years, (laughs) but yeah, we'll definitely circle back around to Russia. Seems, seems like that's our hot button issue, but we'd like to really quickly touch on that third theme, the rise of authoritarianism and the threat it poses to the future of American democracy. So can you lay out some major threats to authoritarianism in the U S maybe first start by defining it?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and start. I mean, so you know, I think about this in in two ways. And so there's obviously the American politics debate about polarization, right? And, you know, the polarization is is asymmetric. And, you know, a lot of what we saw over the last four years was sort of unprecedented challenges to things like the rule of law, law and suffrage and things like that. And, you know, more local debates about things like gerrymandering, and voter suppression and and things like that. So there's a whole debate about democracy in the United States. One can look at the history of the United States and argue that we really only were a full democracy from the Civil Rights Act in 1964 to the attacks on the Voting Rights Act in recent years. And there's a sort of ongoing centuries long project of America becoming a full multiracial democracy. Um, So that's part of it. The other is, you know, I'm the director of European studies and I study the EU as well. And there since 2008 and the financial crisis, you know, from 2008 to 2018, there was this huge rise of far right and authoritarian parties around the around the world, you know, especially in industrialized countries. And so you have the Orban, you have the uh, Party of Law and Justice in Poland, you have Marine Le Pen right, making it to the second round. And if the polls are right, it's neck and neck with uh, Macron in the French election. Right now, you know, you have Trump. So there is sort of, this was a broader global pattern that also part of the discussion is to think about what's US specific in this debate and what are the challenges for the US? And then what's this broader trend? One of the really interesting set of research that, that came out of the global financial crisis was some studies showing that this pattern of voters The center getting hollowed out and voters going to the far right and the far left, but more to the far right, is something that's happened for the last 150 years in industrialized countries in the wake of big economic crises. And so, you know, the world economy blew up in 2008. The Europeans had their own decade-long financial crisis in the Eurozone, Greece and Italy and Spain. And now the world and the U.S. has had another giant economic crisis and so part of the, the other part of the issue is how much of this is a general trend about global things happening and these are the domestic ramifications in the united states of these global shocks and phenomena about democratic backsliding how much of it is kind of unique and specific to the to the united states so that's kind of why you know we have Jamel Bowie and Dan Ziplat, because Dan is a Europeanist and his academic work was on Germany in the 19th and 20th century and the kind of rise of authoritarianism in Europe. And, you know, Jamel Bowie is focusing very much on these kind of U.S. type of political debates. And when we bring in, you know, we're lucky here in our in our department and our university that we have experts on these. So, you know, Joey Herrera is an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe. Right. And Kathy Kramer obviously is the expert on Wisconsin politics and our own polarization debate here in the state. So the idea is to kind of put these smart people together in a room, and think about those two trends and how they intersect with each other.
0: Yeah. And I guess I would just add to that. It's both, I think uh, the, the economic side of that, which Mark focused on, I think is exactly right. And uh, you know, that's that the research he was talking about is just really striking that every time you get these sort of economic crises, you get polarization, you also get, you know, you get polarization that then often comes along at cross-cutting or not cross-cutting cleavage in some cases, like race, you know, some fascinating, there's a fascinating paper a couple of years ago done on Janesville, actually, in our, the American Political Science Review that looked at how polarization increased in Janesville, you know, the shutting down of the car factories there, and but about how, you know, certain, you know, white unemployed went far right, left, and non-white or other non-white unemployed went left, you know, you just got these separations. So then this adds not just a political dimension, but a racial dimension to politics and economic dimension to politics. And so I think that's all fascinating. And then the only other thing I would throw in that I think is obviously a, a piece of this clearly that I know will be discussed at the forum is just disinformation and misinformation, right? That's part and parcel to all of these sort of movements and populist movements around and how they have kind of become infused. And it's not that you couldn't imagine these movements and either far right or far left movements expanding post, you know, 2008 or post COVID, but imagining it, but the speed and the quickness with which it happened without, you know, social media, without the internet, you know? Um, so again, I, I would never say it was a cause, but it certainly was a, a factor that helped helped it along. And again, to bring it back to Russia, like, you know, what you're seeing in Russia with kind of the disinformation about the war, what you've seen on disinformation with COVID or the election in this country or politics in Hungary or Poland. I mean, it's, it's all, there's a, there's a thread through all of that, right. And it ties very much with this sort of populist nationalist authoritarian move that's happening.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, one of the breakout sessions we're going to have, it's going to be Jesse appointing, um, from the Cap Times and uh, David Haynes from the Journal Sentinel, uh, and Lou Friedland, uh, who's recently retired from journalism and mass communications, and basically talking about, you know, how does the media cover democracy in this age of polarization and misinformation and the challenges of that? Just one point in line with what John brought up about you know, the sort of there are the material factors and there are other factors, right? You know, this is another cross-national trend that we've seen in the U.S., but it's part of a broader phenomenon of The people who have switched from supporting center left and center right parties to supporting the far right are usually not the people that we think have been harmed by like the economic crisis and globalization. know, the standard narrative is like the white working class who's lost manufacturing jobs because they've gone to China because there was an economic crisis and sort of now they're moving right to support you know, the Republican Party or, you know, the far right in in whichever European country. But, you know, the base of the support in almost every Western democracy for the far right is actually much more high income people right? More high income and more high, highly educated. And so that gets to what's driving this. Like the central debate in political science for the last decade now is sort of how much material versus ideational factors matter. And so you get into the reason, as John mentioned, that the media and information matter so much is a lot of what drives people's political support and vote and views, perceptions, and perceptions that may be deeply disconnected from the actual material reality. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about inflation and unemployment before. Right. On some level, it doesn't matter what the unemployment rate is or the inflation rate is. What matters is what people think they are and which one is the more serious problem. Right. And so if there's a political narrative about this crisis was this group's fault or it is attacking our national identity or, you know, your group versus my group is kind of winning or losing from some event and things like that. And, um Again, as much as those are debates specifically about the U.S., they're also kind of part of this broader pattern that we've seen in the last decade now.
1: First of all, Professor Peavy House, I have never heard of that Janesville paper, and I would very much like
0: to read it. <laughs> if you know. Yes, I'll send it to you.
1: Ah, awesome. Second of all, you know, I mean, Scott Walker was just on campus talking about how, you know, looking to the next presidential election, if it comes to it, he'll back Trump, but he'd rather see other senators in that place. But you know, thinking ahead, how will the next election cycle or two, the midterms and the presidential elections, perhaps provide us with more understanding of where the US is in terms of the dangers slipping more toward an authoritarian versus democratic system? Like, what can we, what can, what can we see around the bend?
2: I'm not an optimist on this. You know, we have. And again, I think some of this comes from spending some time studying European politics and different electoral systems, and you know the one I know best is Germany but you know our set of political institutions, all of them are effectively at this point anti majoritarian. Right, you know we have first past the post elections with geographic districts which tends towards only having two parties, unlike a sort of proportional representation system where you get six seven ten parties and you get coalition governments so you have a winner take all system where between gerrymandering the senate the electoral college and the current structure of the supreme court every branch of our government effectively represents a minority of the voters right and it's so we're on this very knife edge of you know everything pretty Wisconsin is the epicenter of this sort of knife edgeness of American politics but I mean, you kind of saw it yesterday. So now there's a Black woman who has just been confirmed to be on the Supreme Court. You know, And the, on the one hand, you have sort of, this is the capstone of progress in the United States and sort of big change and things like that. Uh, and on the other hand, the only reason that happened is because of the two runoff elections in Georgia, where the Senate control was on a knife edge. If that hadn't happened, you probably would have had a Merrick Garland 2.0 scenario where Biden's nominee wouldn't even have gotten hearings or votes. It's a different system than like in Germany, where you get a coalition of three parties that represents like 55, 60% of the public and very much the center of the political spectrum. We go back and forth depending on who's in power. And the parties are very different. And again, there's a lot of polarization and asymmetric. Lots of policies that have the support of 70% of the population have no chance of passing in the United States. Right? Because of the structure of our political institutions. And so you could be optimistic that things that things will change, that, but the the flip side is they could flip very quickly. Right? You know you have elections that are decided by a couple of percent. and if they go to three percent in the other way and there's unified government in the other direction, the policy shift is going to be enormous. Right? And again, get to go back to John's point about uncertainty. right The sort of level of uncertainty in American politics is much, much higher. Right, then the level of uncertainty in German politics like you know. Chancellor Schultz might lose the next election, in which case you'll get like a Christian democratic coalition government that most of the policies will be exactly the same. Right, and you see this has international level ramifications so you know Biden's been going around Europe meeting with our NATO allies and G seven allies for the last year now saying America's back. And the the response he's been getting from Macron and and everybody else is like, well, you're back now, but what about 2024? Imagine the U.S. response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine if the previous administration were still in power. And it would be a sort of night and day difference in in policy response. And so there's a level of uncertainty I think we have about our future direction with other countries. You know, there's uncertainty, but that policy cycling and shift and credibility concerns don't exist for the Canadians or for the Germans or for yeah maybe it's, maybe it does for the French right now. But, you know, for for most of our other close allies, there's not that much uncertainty.
0: And I think, yeah, I think exacerbating that is the fact that because we've been so polarized for the last, frankly, for the last 20 years, plus a lot of those back and forth policies that Mark talked about you know, they're, they're being instantiated not through Congress because Congress has been too divided to do anything. They're often being instantiated through things like executive orders, right? And they're being, they're being instantiated by presidential decision-making, which means by definition, when you get these sort of quick back and forths, you're getting all these policy changes. So interestingly enough, when Mark, when Mark and I were in graduate school, like the, the popular argument at the time was, oh, democracies are great because they have this policy stability because they have to get stuff through legislatures right? And legislatures don't shift a lot. You know, a few seats will shift here and there, but like democracies make these like long-term hardcore commitments that everyone believes in. And like you look around in the last 20 years, just belies that to some extent, right? And it's that we're in, we're out, we're back in. And I think a lot of that comes down to executive authority. And that's one of the authoritarianism points, right? Executive authority is about division of power and not concentrating power in a few hands. And so You've not seen, you know, you, that's one of the things that you've seen in, in multiple countries.
2: Yeah, every argument in, in international relations about democracy and war, international cooperation, institutions, et cetera, is about the credibility of commitments, right. right? Democracies can borrow at lower costs because of credible commitments. They, they join international organizations more, they're less likely to go to war because they can credibly threaten things like that. And so as soon as you talk about this back and forth cycling, then those arguments about democracies having more credibility and being more stable just start to look like uh, they're not working in the same way and that's tied up in the question frankly of like you know what makes a democracy a democracy and is america really a democracy right as i mentioned right if if all of your institutions are anti majoritarian right you know depending on how you define what makes a democracy a democracy you know, some people will say it's about civil rights and civil liberties. Other people will say it's about elections. Other well-known criteria are basically about the equality of voting and equal access to suffrage, right? And so if you start to think about some votes count more than others because of the electoral college or the Senate, and there's a lot of voter suppression, then you sort of say, well, you know, we score lower on the democracy scale that, than other countries might, um, so those are the, kind of the types of questions and issues that I'm hoping we'll wrestle with at the at the forum.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I want to circle back to the idea of credible commitment. And given the fact that you both have a focus on international relations, I think we'd be remiss not to at least ask you quickly here about the ongoing war and humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. So I would love to get your take. How concerned are you that the Russia invasion has altered the global order or changed the rules of the game, so to speak? This question is for both of you or either.
2: I'm going to make John take it first, the hard question. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> remember, I was saying to someone the other day, remember the halcyon days of 2018 when Europe was falling apart and there was not going to be a NATO anymore, and, you know, so much for that, right? I mean, it's hard to imagine any other event that could have created a unified NATO, a unified Europe, kind of all rallying around the flag than this. Now it's unfortunate it took this, but let's face it, like people are now, you know, you're seeing articles about, oh, the future greatness of Europe and no one remembers Brexit or the Euro crisis anymore, right, it's all like, ah, you know, <clears throat> anti-Putin, right? And, and how are we gonna change energy interdependence and these, and these types of things? Now the challenge, of course, so in that sense, you could argue it was kind of a good thing. I mean, we're now back to liking the WTO because we can use it to punish Russia and all these types of things. And so, I mean, that's that's a sea change, right? And as of February 24th, like everything changed, right? And even though, right, Biden had gone around saying, we're back open for business, as Mark said, people were skeptical, but now they need us and we need them. And so, you know, this has really transformed this back into somewhat of a Cold War situation. And that's what these institutions were made for, right? Was to buttress Europe and the regrowth of Europe after World War II and create a, a global economic system that was built on a set of shared principles. And so th- it's all playing right into that. Right? That's a positive thing, I think. Now the question is, you know, is anything next for Putin? What does Putin do? What is Russia's position in this? Does Europe continue to push itself Away from Russia, and I think the answer to all of that is yes. I think, you know, you could have seen these sanctions, and you know, the question I keep asking students, asking myself, is like, imagine tomorrow Putin quits Ukraine, like then what? That's not going to happen, by the way, but just play that scenario through. Like, what is, how does this look four or five years from now? And I think, you know, when the invasion first started a few weeks ago, you could have imagined the situation in which this was all bargained over, right? And that Russia gets sort of slowly let back in as a, for leaving or paying some kind of paying for the damage they did or whatever. But now that you've had this, this massive violation of human rights and you've seen this, this horrible situation that's starting to emerge on the ground and the bombing of civilians, Russia's done. I mean, as long as Putin is in power, I do not see Russia being invited back to the community of nations anytime soon. And then the question starts to become, okay, then who else? Because let's face it, The West and the United States has largely moved to isolate and will continue to isolate Russia. China, eh, not so much. I mean, they're not like rallying hard behind Russia but they're gonna help Russia. India, right, the word on the street is India and uh, Russia have signed a ruble exchange rate regime. And so that they're gonna start helping each other out. 85% of the Indian military is Russian military equipment. You know, the Middle East, Israel's not been anxious to jump behind the United States on this. Turkey certainly has been, and they're in NATO, right? The Saudis won't answer Joe Biden's phone calls right now about increasing oil production. So it's like, there's some challenges out there. Now, Can can Putin ultimately rally these people to his cause? I don't think so. But what you're going to see, I think, is an emergence of this sort of, uh, this may be too bit dramatic, but I've been telling people, you know, we we talked about the world is flat for long. I think the world's getting round again. You know, you're going to see Russia have its sort of pariah nations off Iran, Venezuela, North Korea. China's going to be involved in that somehow. But as Mark also said earlier, China's yet still in, right? China's going to be the go-between. Does that give them a new source of power? in this kind of new world order that might emerge after this? What does India do with that? Do they keep, just like they did in the cold war, trying to play the middle, you know? And, and that they in China, ironically, become sort of economic power brokers in there. There's a lot of uncertainty around with the fallout from what this is gonna be. And I think there's some positives in terms of reinforcing the Western Alliance, but I think there's also some gonna be some real economic and political challenges coming because of this.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think, uh... I think John is exactly right. I mean, this gets at some of the, the research I'm, I'm doing on uh, American financial power. Like, you know, one of the ways to look at this in the last, and I had a couple op eds on this in, in the last week or so, which, you know, weren't incredibly well-received because people don't like to be told that things are good about the economy or that like American power is unprecedented. But the financial sanctions and the way they came together, it was like, you know, you couldn't have a starker demonstration of, the most important thing in international relations for power is money uh, or money and finance and that the West still has it. Right. I mean, basically the U S the EU, the Canadians, the uh, Japanese and the Swiss, right. In, (laughs) in a matter of weeks have completely closed Russia off with the exception of the gas issue, you know, which is a whole nother kind of sensitive issue from the global economy. Right. So the ruble, You see in the news, the ruble is actually back to the value that it was on February 28th. But that's because Russia has imposed near total capital controls and nobody's buying and trading rubles anymore. So the central bank can kind of prop up an artificial value of the ruble. So you've seen like how powerful the West is. And John's exactly right. You know, when things are good in international affairs, the West bickers amongst itself. The US and the Europeans bicker, the Germans and the French bicker, and it's been like wall-to-wall unity basically against Russia on the Ukraine issue. And that puts China in this really tough position, right? I think it's magnified. China's big on trade and they have a big military. They're not part of the sanctions because the renminbi, right, is not fully convertible. And China's pretty unimportant in international finance. And China now has to choose. Right. You can be the rising hegemon that can want to replace the U.S. in the world order, or you can be a close ally of Vladimir Putin. You can't be both. Right. And so that's the that's the tension for China now of, yeah, you could rally a coalition, but it's that coalition of countries that John talked about, which is not an equal coalition. Right. To the US and the European Union and Japan and Canada and kind of you know like the sort of rich industrialized democracies and that are big in the global economy. So that's a that's a, a big thing. I mean the other thing about the war of course is you know our domestic political debate about here and the European's domestic political debate about what to do. This is tough because Russia, while it is small economically, is still you know one of the two big nuclear superpowers. Right. And so, you know, there's this political push for, you know, the U.S. should do more. or There should be a no-fly zone or there should be troops on the ground or something like that. And this is not the Gulf War with Saddam Hussein in the 1990s, right, where you can kind of go in and fight fight a conventional war against the country you knew you were much stronger than. Right. Who knows? Like there are the, the World War Three concerns about going in and you know creating a conflict between nuclear powers. And so normatively that's terrible because we're sort of sitting and watching, you know, human rights violations that remind us of 80 years ago now. The question is what to do about them. And sanctions are not a substitute for military force. You know, but there was this whole debate about Biden gaffing about saying this man can't stay in power during his Warsaw, right? Warsaw speech. Um, and people saying, well, wait, does the US want regime change? Are we going to kind of go to war with Russia and overturn Putin? But I think it sort of ties into what John said. You know, I don't really think that was a gaffe because. You know, Putin has isolated himself globally now to the point that Russia is not going to be allowed back in as a full player, you know, in global institutions unless he goes. Now, when he goes, how long, in what form he goes, whether that's a coup, whether that's a domestic revolution, whether there is a military conflict between the West and Russia, no one wants to put money on any of those scenarios. But I think that within, within two years, economically Europe will have decoupled itself from Russia, right? You can't do it immediately. And there's a big debate in Germany right now about this, right? Of, you know, there's this discussion of the Zeitenwende or turning point, And suddenly after 30 years, all the sacred cows of German foreign policy are being thrown away, right? You know, the Green Party is talking about whether Germany should have nuclear weapons or not, right? Um, and, you know, Germany might finally spend 2% on NATO and all these things that were basically forbidden topics in German politics. But that stuff is going to happen over the next two or three years. And then you have an even more isolated Russia because they don't, in the short term, they've got this economic leverage because of the gas, the gas and oil exports. But over a two to three year period, the West unhooks and finds substitutes for those. And then Russia loses its leverage. And you know the sanctions are going to strangle the rest of the economy. And then the question is, well, what happens domestically in Russia after all of that? Again, I'm, you know, I wouldn't wanna place bets on any of these scenarios. They're all possible, but I don't think anybody knows what's actually going to happen.
1: And on that note, you, you've both gotten us really excited, I think, for the forum. And I know I need to send some emails about which, which things I wanna to go to and who I wanna interview. So I should probably get to work on that because all, of, all these things sound so interesting.
2: It's free and there's lunch and we would love to get as many students there as, as possible. And, you know, there's going to be a QA and a period in every one of these sessions. So, um, you know, you can come, you can hear what people have to say, you can ask questions and the students ask the best questions.
1: Yeah. Right? And I heard rumors so, of yeah. transportation from campus. So that's always there, better.
2: There might be as well. Yeah.
1: Hell yeah. Thank you both for coming on the podcast today. You've both been a pleasure and you've made me think about some things.
2: Excellent. That's always the goal. Yes.
1: For more information, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers
3: and Claire Salmi
1: and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.